Good morning. My name is Pastor Colin Seitz, and I serve as the associate pastor at Crossroads EV Free Church in Plymouth, Indiana. And uh, today I'm here in response to God's word in Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. And I'll stop there. The second part says, Weep with those who weep. Uh, today is a day of rejoicing. And, and we wanted you to know, and I wanted you to know, that I also serve as the regional superintendent for the Great Lakes District of the Evangelical Free Church. Uh, a fellowship of churches uh, numbering almost 200 congregations throughout Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio. And uh, what you do here matters, and we are excited with you as uh, John so aptly uh, filled you in on the process of rejoicing at how God has brought you uh, a faithful shepherd and wife and family to lead you in the days ahead. And uh, I wanted you to know that uh, it was our joy to be a part of that process, but also to know that if uh, Lima, Ohio, and this area of Ohio is going to be reached with the gospel, we are praying for you and we are counting on you, and we are looking forward to partnering and doing all we can to continue to encourage and equip and support uh, the work that you're doing here, the important work of the gospel in this region. Uh, this is an important area of God's vineyard, and we're excited how faithful God has been. Uh, you need to know that your process was remarkably brief compared to many. Uh, there are a whole lot of churches who would love to have a process as brief as yours. It speaks well of what God has been doing here. It speaks well of our faithful shepherd, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who leads his people as we look to him. Thank you for praying. Uh, thank you for your support. Uh, two thoughts just as I close, because whenever you get a preacher up here with an open Bible, he's tempted to go longer. But just two thoughts. Number one, will you faithfully pray for your pastor and his wife and family? It, uh, they've moved from a, a nice area of the country to the beautiful flatlands of Ohio. This is a great place to be, and I know they're going to be thrilled with the change of scenery. But pray for them as they uh, hopefully get their household goods soon. Uh, help them get settled in, but don't be too helpful. Give them adequate space. But also just remember to pray for them. Uh, but also just remember... Uh, that unlike God, who knows your every need and everything that's happening in your life, uh, please be faithful to communicate with your pastor when things are going on that he needs your, your attention, he needs to, to be ministering to you. Uh, one of the great uh, challenges of any pastor is finding out after the fact that someone was in the hospital or really could have used a pastoral ministry, only to find out after the fact when it's all over and they're going, oh, I wish someone had let me know. So unlike our Lord, who knows everything about you, he's new, and he will need your inf uh, just letting him know what's going on. Uh, tell him where the good bargains are. Tell his wife where the great shopping values are. Help them to understand uh, the good things that they've come to in coming to this place. So on behalf of the Great Lakes District family of churches who are excited that you are here, who will be praying for you, uh, we welcome you to this region of God's vineyard. We're excited about how God has brought you here and what God will do in and through all of you in the days ahead. Uh, God bless you and congratulations.
Thank you, Colin, and thanks for taking time away from your own church family to be with our church family today and bring greetings from the Great Lakes District. I want to read just a couple short verses first from Acts chapter 13, which says, while they, they there's the leaders of the church of Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, Paul, for the work I have called them to. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The laying on of hands is a symbolic way of acknowledging the person has been set apart for a particular office or a particular work in the life of the church. In just a few minutes, the elders of Grace Community Church are going to do that with Gordon. We're going to have him come up here. We're going to lay hands on him, pray for him as he begins this new role for us as the senior pastor of Grace Community Church. But before we do that, I want to briefly encourage and challenge Gordon and all of us really with one soul-strengthening, ministry-guiding principle from the life of the Apostle Paul during his time in Corinth. It was during his second missionary journey that Paul came to Corinth and planted the church there. And then several years later, he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter, in which he told the church, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided as though nothing among you except Christ Jesus Christ and Him crucified, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Concerning the manner of his preaching, Paul says that he didn't proclaim the message of God with lofty speech or wisdom, which doesn't mean that his teaching was uninformed or that it lacked intellectual rigor. Rather, his point is he didn't rely on rhetoric. He didn't have an elevated or effective communication style. When he was finished speaking, he didn't want his listeners to say, wow, what a marvelous preacher. Instead, he wanted them to say, wow, what a marvelous savior that preacher is talking about. And that's why, according to verse 2, Paul made an intentional decision to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is a longer rewording of what he said just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. Paul was not satisfied only with talking about the miracles of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. He wanted to tell people about Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Because without the cross, there's no reconciliation with God. Without the cross, the penalty of sin has not been paid. Without the cross, the power of sin has not been broken. Without the cross, there's no hope of heaven. The crucifixion is the very heart of Christianity. Commenting on verse 2, Don Carson, who's one of my favorite theologians, and I'm a little jealous. Gordon actually had him as a professor when he was in seminary. Don Carson says in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry, Paul was not devoted to blissful ignorance of anything and everything other than the cross. No, what he means is that all that he does and teaches is tied to the cross. He cannot talk long about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul was gospel-centered. He was cross-centered in his ministry. What Paul says next about his ministry is that while he was in Corinth, he felt weak and fearful. 
He doesn't tell us the cause of that weakness and fear, though we can make some educated guesses if we poke around at some other passages in the New Testament. It doesn't really matter, though, because Paul here is just honestly recounting what is a common experience in ministry, which is that we feel weak. We feel fearful. We're unsure. Do, do I have the physical and emotional strength for this? Do I have the spiritual maturity for this? Do I have the practical skills to do what God has called me to do? And that's not just true for pastors and missionaries. That's true for any kind of ministry. Whether that's in the church, leading Sunday school, or a small group, leading worship, serving on a committee, ministering in the home, caring for family members, raising children to know and love the Lord, ministering in the world, mentoring youth, sharing the gospel, volunteering at ministries like Lyme Rescue Mission or Crisis Pregnancy Center. We're all weak. <laughs> we all feel fearful. But like Paul, what will give us confidence to continue in ministry is knowing this. Knowing that God works through ministers who feel weak and fearful as long as their ministry focus is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul felt weak and fearful, but God used him to plant the church of Corinth because God works through ministers who feel weak and fearful as long as their ministry focus is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So to my brother Gordon, my beloved brother, I, I feel like we're, like we're already kind of joined at the hip. Well, there's some, there's, God has just already knit our hearts together. As you begin your new ministry at Grace Community Church, which I pray in God's providence lasts for a long, long time. I'm talking decades. That's what my prayer is. I want to encourage you with the thought that even when you feel weak, even when you feel afraid, God will work through you as long as you keep the focus of your ministry on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And therefore, because of that, I would urge you in all that you say, in all that you do as our pastor, especially in your preaching ministry, make much of Jesus Christ and of Him crucified. Amen. And now I'd like to invite Gordon to come forward and the elders to come forward as we lay hands on him and ask for God's blessing as he begins this role as our new senior pastor. Let us pray. Father, Acts 15, 18 tells us that you, O Lord, make things known from old. Father, this implies and teaches us that in your infinite wisdom and knowledge, you knew of this moment for the life of this church. And not only did you know it, but you revealed it to us by working it all out by your power, the power of your word. Psalm 33, 9 says, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. Father, we thank you that in your providence, in seeing and knowing all things ahead of time and even before time, you have faithfully 
preserved us, governed us, and directed us for this appointed time and place for your glory. Father, we thank you for Pastor John's obedience and faithful service over all these years. Specifically, you worked in and through him by co-laboring with your spirit to sustain and preserve us through the beautiful preaching and teaching of your revealed, inspired, authoritative word. Your sustaining word is described in Jeremiah 15, 16 through 17. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words to me became a joy and a delight to my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Father, we thank you that you governed us through elders, teachers, workers, and a host of others, both past and present. Through their gifts, abilities, leadership, you directed, you guided the affairs of this church. Father, the days and seasons of this church have truly been a cooperation between you and us. You have worked in and through us to do your will for your good pleasure. And Father, we thank you that you formed and guided and led the search committee within the assembly of your people. Thank you for the resources, time, energy, and efforts of all those involved, all from your hand, to accomplish your purposes for our good. Thank you for the fasting, the prayers of diligent and faithful people, as well as the discussions and events which helped direct us as a people. Thank you, O Lord, for guiding our thoughts, our prayers, our decisions towards the continual growth of your kingdom and your glory. Father, through these things, you have provided Pastor Gordon. Like you provided Joshua to Moses, you have provided Pastor Gordon to us for the next season and life of Grace Community Church. We are humbled by your almighty and everywhere present power, whereby you are original and supreme cause of all things, infusing power into us and cooperating in our movements, our deeds, and activities. Yours is the kingdom and the power forever. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the great mystery that is that you work with us in partnership, and not only that, but that you partner with us to a next level by calling us your sons and daughters. You bring us into your family, and you let us commune with you and communicate with you. Take in your words, as Joe said, and eat them. Meditate on them. Father, I thank you that Gordon has committed himself to this, as Jesus said, abiding in you, abiding in you in this way. And we thank you that it's refreshing and that it can bring joy and it can be easy and light. And yet, Father, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's hard. Father, would your spirit be with Gordon? Lord, you've called him not just your servant, but your friend. Father, we're humans. We see our friends. We touch our friends. We hear their voice. We can't do that with you, and it can be very hard. So, Lord God, there are going to be days and mornings when we know it seems like we're talking to ourselves when we pray, reading words on a page. And when that happens... Would you, would your spirit minister to Gordon? Would you bring his dry bones to life? Would you be present even when he doesn't feel you? You are there. You promised to never leave us and forsake us. So, Father, when he's dry, refresh him. 
bring him through the, the spiritual valleys of dryness. And Father, we pray that they would be rare and few. Father, we pray that more characteristic of his time here will be daily renewing in your presence, feeling sustained by you, feeling loved by you. Father, we pray that that would be daily. We pray that that would be hourly. Lord God, uh, it seems too good to be true sometimes that, that we are actually your sons and daughters, that we actually are counted righteous, that you really are here with us, that you actually kind of like us, <laughs> that it doesn't seem like it can be true. Help Gordon know that it is true. Renew him in his spirit all of the time to know these things and to delight in you. We pray that for him and for our church body. In the name of Jesus. Dear Lord, we rejoice that you are God who hears our prayers, Lord. And we rejoice, Lord, in your faithfulness and how you have led us in the bring the McFells here, dear Lord. We are so thankful for Pastor Gordon, and we just uh, lift him up. But we also lift up his family, dear Lord. We are so thankful that Mary Elizabeth is here now, and we thank you for watching over this week as you brought her and David and Kelly with us, dear Lord. And, and we just pray for them. We pray that you will guide and help them. And this is, these are difficult times with transition. And we pray that you give her good discernment as she's alongside Gordon. We just pray that you will uh, give her patience, Lord, with all the things that need to happen. And we just pray uh, that you will give her the strength that when he's down, that you give her strength to lift him up. And we just pray that you will bless them as a couple, dear Lord, and that you will help them as they work through ministry together. And we just pray for your guidance in their lives, dear Lord. And I pray, especially for Mary Elizabeth, with the women of her church, that you will bless her and bless her as she gets to know them, and that you will help the women of our body to be able to come alongside her, to encourage her, to lift her up, and, and Lord, just to help her with the, the things in life, with the two little ones, and we just pray for your guidance there. And dear Lord, we rejoice with David and with Kelly, and we're excited to see them grow up, dear Lord, and I'm excited to see them in our body, and we pray that you will help us as a body to be able to teach and minister and guide them, help them to uh, to grow and to, to, to learn about you, and that's a, a challenge for our body, dear Lord. We just pray that you will help us to be able to present the gospel and to be able to encourage them and to come alongside them. And we just pray for your, your guidance with them as a family. And dear Lord, we know right now there's been a lot of challenges that have been going on recently, that this transition, this move has not been easy. And it may not be easy here in the next few weeks, but I pray for our body that we continue to come alongside them, that we continue to help in any way that we can with the needs that they have. And Lord, we know you're faithful, but we also know, Lord, that we are a family, that we are a family of believers. And I pray that you will help us to work and be alongside this transition. And as John said, the decades we pray that we may be together as a family. And we pray for that. Dear Lord, I also rejoice that uh, Gordon and Mary Elizabeth didn't come alone. And uh, Lord, I rejoice that Carol and Bruce are with us, that his parents are here. And uh, I, I've been privileged, Lord, to get to know them. And I can rejoice with them. And we thank you for them. And I pray to the Lord that you will give them wisdom, wisdom with the medical decisions that they need to make, wisdom in providing doctors that can tell them what's going on with Bruce still, Lord. And we pray especially for Carol as a caregiver that you will just guide and be with her and uh, give her strength, Lord. 
and give Bruce strength as they seek your guidance and your direction through this very difficult time. Lord, we do praise you because you are faithful. You are a loving God, dear Lord, and we thank you for that. And we rejoice and praise you for bringing the McFells to be part of our family. Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. Oh, that prayer from the psalmist we pray on behalf of our brother Gordon. Would you open his eyes day by day and week by week that he might behold wonderful, glorious truth from your word. Enable him to explore its truth. Lord, may he love your word and what it says with all his heart. May he be comforted and challenged and transformed by what he reads and studies and meditates on. Lord, I pray that your word continues to take deep root in his life. Thank you. Just talking to him, you can tell he's a man who's already saturated himself with your word. And Lord, I pray that happens for years and decades into the future. And Lord, as the word transforms him, I pray that you would help him take the truth of your word and craft it into messages that would teach and exhort and edify and refresh your people. And Lord, in your providence, use his words to awaken the dead, to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to bring about godly transformation in the lives of your people. I pray, Lord, that in all his preaching, Jesus Christ is exalted. Father, would you visit his teaching and his preaching, indeed his whole ministry, with power from on high that you might be glorified in your church. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, I will build my church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we are rejoicing today of our new pastor, Gordon McPhail. In his name we pray, amen. page 1160. After I finish the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to say, thanks be to God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all, all generations forever and ever, amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. He said, not having turned the sound. <laughs> Let's try that again. Please pray with me. <laughs> Almighty Father, we give you thanks and praise that we can gather this day to know your son Jesus and to know him in his word. Oh, Father, now work amongst us by your spirit. Make us of one spirit. Make us of one mind, of one heart, to know your word and to know you. Equip me and strengthen our hearts so that we may hear you rightly and obey you for the joy that we have in Jesus. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, there is entirely too much for me to say on a normal week, and there's still too much to say this morning, I'm sure I'll say some things that I oughtn't to and then forget some things that I ought to, but I crave your indulgence and your patience with me as we get to know each other in and through the Word of God. <laughs> this is a difficult passage because ordinarily I'd like to sort of have a run-up to a passage, but we're just kind of airlifting ourselves into the book of Ephesians. And the reason that we're doing that is because we're trying to cast a vision for the lifeblood of this church in the next few years. And we think it was found really well expressed in this passage. So to keen your minds, I want to remind you of a few things that the apostles wrote in other places as well before we really dig in. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He goes on in the same letter, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
or in 1 Corinthians 1.10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And just so we know, it wasn't only Paul. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. We also have warnings to the same effect. Hebrews 4, verse 2, the author says, for good news came to us just as to them, the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. I read all those because our theme for today, as we look at this passage in Ephesians, so if you have a handout across the top, will be a very long, complicated sentence. But it is the theme for what we're going to look at today, which is that God will unite the church to his character, transforming her by his power, to display his gospel and his glory and his grace. God will unite the church. How does he do that? He, or to what end? To his character, to be more like him. How does he do it? He transforms her by his power. To what purpose? To display his gospel, to display his glory, and to display his grace. Friends, I would love for that to be our mission statement, as it were, here at Grace Community Church, that we are here united, seeking to grow close to the character of God. We trust that we are being changed by his power to the end that we would display his gospel, his glory, and his grace. So, let's dig into the passage. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open with me. Let's look together at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 4, verse 6. Obviously, we don't have time to cover this in any great detail. In fact, we're not even going to cover most of it. We're going to look mostly at Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. But we wanted the run-up so we can get some context. So let's summarize this passage so that we know what's going on here. Starting in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, we have a context. Paul is praying. It's his prayer for the church. Now, there's two things that we need to notice in that prayer. The first is in verse 20. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us. So, verse 20, the power to do what God commands comes from his grace. The power to do what God commands comes from his grace. Now, the second thing we need to know is in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the power to do what God commands comes from his grace. The purpose of our obedience is to display his glory. See, he says, to him, that is God, be glory in the church. So why has God put his power at work in the church? It's to display his glory. The power to do what God commands comes from his grace. The purpose is to display his glory. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, look and see how Paul addresses the body. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. So Paul locates himself 
and he locates us, consequently, within the scope of Christ's victory. He says, I am a prisoner captured by Christ. And he's going to call on us to behave in the same way as prisoners captured by Christ in his victory at the cross. So he locates us in the scope of Jesus' victory, and he charges us to pursue our call by relying on Christ's power. Then in verses 2 through 3, Paul defines five features of that new life that produce true unity. Five things that are supplied by God's power and that will display God's glory. We'll talk about them in a little bit. And then verses 4 through 6, Paul shows the purpose of such profound holy unity. Such a life is to display God's glory. How we live together, he says, both individually as individual Christians and communally as a church, reveals our God. How we live as Christians individually and how we live together as a church shows our God. It reveals who God is. God intends the church to display by her eager pursuit of a peaceful unity, his glorious character, his glorious gospel, his glorious grace. Feel like you have a grasp of the passage? Should we dig in? Let's look deeper. So if you're following in the handout, we are at big point B. The first thing that we want to see here is that true Christian unity can only spring from a new, genuine, gospel-forged identity. True Christian unity can only spring from a new, genuine, and gospel-forged identity. We're going to pair two verses against each other here. So look at verse 1. And look at verse 8. In verse 1 he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And in verse 8, he picks up that same theme. He says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. Let's flesh this out. See, if we're going to walk in union as believers... We need to first learn to see ourselves as captives to Christ's glorious victory. If we're going to walk together in harmony, in peace, as believers, we have to first learn to see ourselves as captives of Christ's victory at the cross. So, again, at verse 1, Paul calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. Some translations will say a prisoner of the Lord. And it's because it's difficult to translate that particular particle. It could be in the Lord, of the Lord, for the Lord. Now, why is this interesting? Well, it's interesting because Paul, when he writes this, is a prisoner, but he's, but he's most immediately a prisoner not of Christ, it would seem. He's most immediately a prisoner of Rome. But even though he's currently a Roman prisoner... He chooses to see himself not primarily as Rome's prisoner. He chooses to see himself primarily as Christ's prisoner, as captive to Christ's glorious victory. So rather than assuming an identity, an attitude, or a life that is based on his immediate circumstances, he bases it on what Jesus did for him at the cross. And that's quintessential to Christian life. Everything that we're going to seek to do as a body of believers and as individual believers needs to flow from the fountain 
of knowing ourselves to have been bought by Christ at his cross, ransomed by him, won by him in a victory that no one can contest, and that we are now his, his property, his brothers and sisters, his own family. So when Paul calls himself the Lord's prisoner, he means that Jesus, when he died on the cross, exchanging his life of righteousness for Paul's life of sin, won Paul from the penalty, power, and ultimately presence of sin. He's relying on a, an image in Roman society where a Roman conqueror, after he had defeated the enemy, would take captives from that land and bring them to the capital of Rome and display them as, as a mark. See, I am victorious. I won. And all these people are now ours. Well, that's a militant and imperialistic picture, but it picks up the idea that when Jesus went to the cross, he took us away from captivity to sin. He made us his own. He brought us into his victory train, and when he marches into the capital, we're his now. We don't belong to whatever country we formerly were a part of. We don't belong to whatever ethnicity we were formerly a part of. We belong most essentially to Christ. We are his prisoners. Now, Paul goes on to say that this life-changing power of Jesus' deliverance extends not just to the apostles, not just to Paul. It's not like Paul is a special prisoner of Jesus. He means all of us are prisoners of Jesus. And this new life, captive to Christ and not to sin, is described all over the Bible. So we don't have time today to go running all over the place to see it. But if you wanted to study this week, you'd look at Romans 5 through 8. That whole section is describing this transition out of slavery to sin and into slavery to Christ. But it gets summed up most essentially in Galatians 2.20. I think we've got that. So in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, that victory, it took me with it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is how essential the cross is to Paul's identity, and to the unity of the church. So here, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, Paul extends that identity, not just to the apostle, but to the whole church. He implies that every Christian is a captive of Christ's victory on the cross. And that's at least part of what he's saying in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, that being Jesus, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's going to go on to say that the gifts are things like the apostles, the teachers, the prophets, and the wonderful things for the upbuilding of the church. But it is at least possible that what he means by captives is us. Not just Paul, us, all of us. So he implies every Christian is a captive, and then consequently, we should rely on his grace in order to live in light of that transformative identity. That's why he writes, but grace was given to each one of us, this is verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So the whole point is that our identity here 
is formed by depending upon the grace that Jesus gives. Paul is calling the church to trace its identity, both individually and collectively, moment by moment, back to the victory of Jesus. To see ourselves as more Christian than anything else. More Christian than American. More Christian than white or black. More Christian than Scottish or Irish. More Christian than rich or poor. More Christian than of this class or that class. That our identity is first and supremely Christian. I live as I live because I am a Christian. I do what I do because I am a Christian. I am a captive of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He bought me at enormous cost and my life is his. And that is why I live as I do. If you came to Sunday school this morning, which I encourage you to do, Nathan, I was in Nathan's this morning, and we talked about Daniel's demonstration of courage to live as a, I'm going to say Christian, as a follower of the one true and living God in the midst of a difficult world. And he was looking back to this promise of redemption in his God. I had a friend back in Colorado who was also a minister, and he was also a Marine. And I hope that this illusion doesn't fall foul of some. I'm sure that many of us have served in different branches of the nation's military. Appreciate you. Thank you for your service. He always said, some people join the army, other people become Marines. <laughs> now, his point was, of course, that there was something more to his service than just, I went and joined a club. I, we did these things, I wore these clothes, we had these funny hats, it was super cool. What I'd like to mention is that we need to come up with the mindset that we don't join the church, we become the church. Y you haven't joined the, the, the thing that is Christianity, you are a Christian. Some people join the army, other people become Marines. <laughs> Next big point. So if we're following along, next big point, big point C. Next thing to note is that true Christian unity is characterized by and mobilized by making God and his glory our greatest treasure. True Christian unity is characterized and mobilized by making God and his glory our greatest treasure. If we're to walk in union as believers, we must learn to see God's glory as greater and more valuable than our own. If we're going to walk together in union as believers, we have to learn to see God's glory as both greater and more valuable than our own. Otherwise, we will be spent in fights over trying to obtain and secure and uphold our own glory. So this first, I broke this into two parts. A true Christian unity is mobilized and it's characterized. It's mobilized by making God and his glory our greatest treasure. And we'll see that if we look back up into chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. A Christian does not live out peaceful unity simply by drawing on some reservoir of hidden strength. We're not a gathering of persons who have discovered some secret within us that allows us to live 
in particular unity with other people. We're a group of people who have gathered together because we have discovered the wonderful power of Jesus Christ, and that makes us at one with everyone else who has discovered the wonderful and wondrous working power of Jesus Christ. Paul begins his section in chapter 4 with a therefore, which I'm sure by now all of you know, if you ever see a therefore, you have to look to see what it is therefore. <laughs> and so we look backwards to see what it is therefore. He calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling because God is at work in us and is able to do more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. That is why. And this means that Christian unity requires real individual and corporate transformation by a genuine work of God's grace. In other words, you can't be a Christian just in play act only. You have to have experienced the wonderful power of Jesus changing your heart. If you don't know Jesus' power in your heart, you can't be a Christian. You aren't a Christian yet. We pray you will be soon. But this peculiar call to walk in such unity for the sake of the glory of God can only come from relying on the power of Jesus at work within us. Pursuing a Christian life unaccompanied by the renewal of God's spirit and grace is like trying to bring your goods to market, drawing them with a dead horse. You won't get there, and everything you bring will stink. <laughs> Whatever obedience we offer up to God, not relying upon his spirit and not relying upon his grace, is not only not efficacious, it won't get there but it reeks of legalistic fervor and self-righteousness and pride. It won't be a sweet-smelling, joyful, and willing outworking of God's grace. Instead, it will be a fetid, proud, begrudging attempt at satisfying God's law. If you find the pathway of Christ to be so difficult... One of the potential reasons could be because you are not relying upon the power of Christ. You are relying upon the power of self. And that's understandable because the world around us tells us constantly that that is exactly what we should rely on in order to do what we want. Look within yourself, they say. Well, the scripture calls us to look to Christ. The road to living a life worthy of the calling and maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace can only be traveled by the way of the cross. But consider in the same moment what wondrous power God makes available to us. It is he who asserts, uh, it is he who Paul asserts in chapter 3 verse 20, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So the power that is available is amazing. There's always more <laughs> There's more than you could ever ask for. There's more than you ever thought existed. There's more than even if you put your best imaginative work towards it, you couldn't come up with how much power God has to suffuse you and suffice you with his goodness to make you more like him. So to say that Christian unity is mobilized by making God and his glory our greatest treasure really properly should be to say that God sets this new reality in motion. God mobilizes Christian unity in his people with an astonishing and ever-increasing work of grace. But secondly, it's characterized by making God and his glory our greatest treasure. 
So it's set in motion when we seek God in his glory, and it's characterized by what that kind of a pursuit will do. Look at 3 verse 21. In his conclusion, Paul gives the goal of God's work in believers. To him, he says, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus proclaims the glory of God, but the church displays the glory of God as well. The point of God's grace is to display his glory in us. So he means to change us in such a profound way that everything from our thoughts to our words to our feelings and actions all unite to glorify God's grace. So we can rest assured, when we live out of the abundance of Christ's glorious gospel, and in accordance with that reality, we always give God glory. There's some of us who sometimes wonder, like, well, I, I'm so feeble, I'm so weak, what I've done, it isn't quite right, I'm sure I didn't say the right words. <sighs> That's not what makes it glorifying to God, is it? Fundamentally, what makes an action glorifying to God is the heart behind it. If the heart desired to give God glory, if the heart was trusting on Jesus, that heart gives God glory. Now look at how a deep love for the glory of God animates the following five traits. He gives us a picture of what this unity is going to look like. He says, though, we'll be humble, we'll exercise gentleness, We'll have patience. We will bear with one another in love. We will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, we could spend five more sermons on these. Obviously, we can't. <laughs> Humility. Someone who is humble is not someone, as C.S. Lewis perhaps famously pointed out, thinks less of themselves, but is someone who thinks of themselves less. A humble person, Lewis would say, is not someone who thinks less of themselves, but someone who thinks of themselves less. Someone, we might say, who is entranced by God and his glory. Humility, then, is the character trait that results from true worship. You want to grow humility in your life? I, I would caution you against going and saying, God, I pray that you would humiliate me in some way. He may do that. <laughs> I don't know that that's the primary way that God creates humility in the life of the believer. I think the primary way that humility is forged in the life of a believer is when a believer worships God. Because as your esteem for the value and the glory and the goodness of God increases, your esteem for yourself, your own preeminence, your own glory, as it were, will of necessity decrease. You will be able to say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. Humility is caused by a deep and profound love for God's glory, a desire that God's glory be known far beyond our own. Another thing that we see about humility is that it's sacrificial. Paul says of Jesus in Philippians 2 that he humbled himself by obedience for the sake of God's will and for the good of his church to death on the cross. So humility necessarily gives up rights, gives up preferences, gives up opinions, even goes so far as to give up needs, needs even up to and including our life. The church, if it, in, if it is going to remain united in the coming days, weeks, months, years, 
and decades must grow in her willingness to surrender her preferences, surrender even her needs, even up to and including her life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Humility produces an attitude of sacrifice. And when the joy of Jesus' cross and the beauty of God's glory is fixed in our heart, we are able, even joyful, to decrease to the glory of God. Paul associates these ideas in Romans 12, 1 through 3. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we present ourselves to God, in worship, that does something. Because then he says, in commanding us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, which we all know, he then commands us to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Worship and humility have a direct connection Let's consider gentleness. Gentleness is the in love part of speaking the truth in love. You all know that. We as Christians, we believe that we should speak the truth in love. Gentleness is the in love part of speaking the truth in love. It's a compassionate understanding of another person's condition in such a way that they can more readily receive God's word and grace. It's knowing that other person so well that you can find a way to speak to them in such a way that they are more able to receive the grace and the goodness of God. Patience, literally forbearance, literally in the Greek, one of my favorite words, it is to separate from wrath, makrothumia. Patience is to separate wrath from yourself. It's most obviously demonstrated in Jesus' death on the cross where God exercises patience towards us. He separates his just wrath from us, and he puts it on Jesus. Patience is the virtue that arises when someone has done something wrong to you. You have been wronged. You have reason for wrath. And instead of exercising your just right to obtain your vengeance, what is your due, your honor, you separate yourself from it. Say, no. No, I'm not going to do that. We often think of patience as merely waiting, like waiting in line. And it is sometimes that. But often it means to do for others what Jesus has already done for us. Living in patience means doing for others what Jesus has already done for us. He graciously forbore our injuries in order to display God's love to us and to win us from sin. Thus, bearing with one another in love is almost a synonym. This means to respond to others in light of God's treatment to them and us in Jesus through his gospel. It means to respond to others in light of God's treatment of them in Jesus through his gospel. We can think of Matthew chapter 18, for instance, which I'm sure we have, we've been through recently. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of two debtors. And the fundamental flaw in the story of the debtors, right, is that the one debtor forgets that he had been forgiven a debt. 
he doesn't think in terms of how the king treated him when he goes to treat the other person. Well, bearing with one another in love fundamentally depends on us remembering what happened to us at the cross, how God dealt with us most graciously, and then going and deciding what we're going to do with whoever it is that's in front of us. Someone who is keenly aware of the gospel's effect in their own life will make their choices not based first on their own preferences, but on what promotes the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, joy, says Romans 14, 17. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could live as we like, which I think is a little bit of a surprise to some preachers today. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could live as we like. He died on the cross so that we could see, savor, and display the glory of God. He died on the cross so you could see God. He died on the cross so you could taste the goodness of God. He died on the cross to bring you to God. He died on the cross so you could become way more like God than you ever were like you. So that your preferences would become much more like God's preferences than they were yours. And so that the thing that you thought you needed once upon a time in your life, you now know, I don't really fundamentally need that. I would rather have Jesus than bread. I would rather have Jesus than riches. I would rather have Jesus than fame. I would rather have Jesus than anything else. See, love treats another human being as someone for whom Christ died. And that produces an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Do you see how those two are connected? If you see the immense value that Jesus set on that other person, if you see the immense value that Jesus would have done exactly what he did if that person were the only person that he was going to ransom to his church, Jesus would have done exactly what he did to draw them to himself, that he set the full measure of his sacrifice on their head. If you see that, you will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace rather than trample on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Which brings us to big point D and our conclusion. True Christian unity is both an individual and a communal reality. It is the effect of God's power at work in God's people to produce a glorious picture of his triune nature. True, true Christian unity is both an individual and a communal reality. That means it's us on our own and us all together. The effect of God's power at work in his people to produce a glorious picture of his triune nature. Walking in peace is the right effect of pursuing and loving God. Setting our affections solely and supremely on him. Friends, we are one because there is one God. We're not one because we're just the nicest people in the world. We're not one because we have nothing to argue about. We're not one because we just don't disagree on anything. Why are we one? We are one because God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And we are one in that one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are one. We live as one by looking back to that sacrifice and looking forward to our hope. We were one at the cross, and we're going to be made one with him on the last day. It is therefore the purpose of Grace Community Church to live and to love in such a way that no matter what may happen in the coming years, 
we will walk. We will be characterized by the peaceful unity that was bought for us by Jesus' blood. We will not participate in the world's divisiveness. We were bought at enormous cost. We will not play their games. We are one in Christ. We're not going to be polarized. We're not going to divide. We're going to remain in him by his blood. This will necessarily put us out of joint with the culture. And my friends, it does not matter which part of the culture you feel most familiar with, whether you feel yourself to be conservative or liberal, progressive or not, of one or another party, if you take this creed, you will be put out of joint with every single constituency that assembles itself in the world and takes a name. But we choose to embrace the greater, the truer, the more lasting, the blood-bought, the God-enabled gospel identity that God gives us in Jesus by his spirit. We will travel the king's highway that leads us and all who join us to the celestial city of his grace. You'll find out I love the book Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you know that at one point, Christian, long after he has passed the cross and obtained his new name, he and his friend, Hopeful, uh, are going along. And the road that they're traveling on to the celestial city gets increasingly more difficult. It's hard, and it's rocky, and it's stony, and their feet are blistered and tired. And they look over a fence, and they see marked a place called Bypass Meadow. And the meadow just appears to be so soft and so green and so sweet that Christian says, come, let us go by that way. See, it goes right along by this way, only it is much the easier. It is softer. Let's go over there. Many of you have read the book. You know where that meadow leads them. They get lost in the meadow, first of all. And then they fall asleep, and that night, giant despair comes and takes them and shuts them up in Doubting Castle. Friends, there are going to be constantly times afforded to us right by the side of the road that we're supposed to be traveling that look awfully easier than the one that Jesus asked us to go on. It's much, much easier to get angry with your brothers and sisters, to not have patience for them, to not bear with them kindly, to not strive with eagerness for the bond of unity. But the end of that road is Doubting Castle. We're not going to go that road. We're going to travel the king's highway. Such a life demands that we grow in our knowledge and love of God, and also that we grow in our knowledge and love of one another. It means we must not eradicate, but subjugate all other identities to the preeminence of Jesus and his gospel. We want to be so characterized here by humility, kindness, forbearance, holiness, love, that the world will see, clearly if imperfectly, a reflection in our community of the gospel, of the grace and the glory of the one true God. And such a task requires divine sustenance. What better place to turn and begin our journey together than at the Lord's table? I am not able to do this. You are not able to do this. Who is sufficient for these things, asks the apostle. But what have we seen here? God is able to do more abundantly than we could ever ask, think, or imagine in us to produce his glory in the church and for Jesus Christ. 
Where will we find the strength? We will find it in Jesus. This then is the arena in which we will live out the glories of God's grace and the commands of his word, where God's coming kingdom will take shape. We're going to carry the savor of Jesus to a world blind to his glory. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and the other a fragrance from life to life. It's going to take all of us, individually, communally, feasting on the grace of God that flows from the cross. At the cross, we were made one. And by his spirit, we're strengthened to live and love as one. So we will do it, depending on his power and in pursuit of his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, have mercy on the preaching of your word and strengthen us. Strengthen us to do what you ask of us by giving us a picture of your radiant glory and grace. Father, to those who have not known the sweet touch of your grace, I pray that they would find some friend here and that they would, by their urging, come to know you, the Lord of life. And for all those who do know you and have known your power, I pray that you would renew it again in us and renew our commitment to walk in the way that Christ walked. Give us power to do these things, to realize the unity that you desire for your church, to answer our Lord's prayer, that we would be one as you are one. So make us one, Father, and we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, friends, sorry, I ran long even there, but <laughs> friends, we're now going to take some time together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, this is a special practice that's reserved for Christians, those who by faith discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus in this practice of remembrance. So it's good, therefore, that we take a moment as a body of faith to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord by faith. So let's take a moment together now. Let's silently prepare our hearts for the Lord, and then I will offer a prayer on our behalf, a prayer of confession. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most Holy Father, we come before you to acknowledge our sins and to seek out and trust in the grace of our Savior. Father, we have not done as we ought to have done. We have not loved you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so we come sorrowful, but truly repentant. We also come eager and confident knowing that in Jesus we have an audience to your unfailing mercy, which is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. So, Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God has promised us in his most holy word by the Apostle John 
that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friend, if you truly repent and trust in Jesus, God has forgiven your sin and our sin. And by his spirit, he unites us to one another, even to himself. Friends, we do this practice because in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them again saying, drink you all of this. For this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And so we confess with the Apostle Paul that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here at Grace Community Church, we practice what is called an open communion table. That means that anyone who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do I mean by that? Do you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived? Do you believe that Jesus died the death that you deserve to die? And that Jesus was raised as a promise of your eternal life, that he will come back to usher in that kingdom? If you believe that, you are welcome at the table of the Lord. And today we're going to come forward or backward, to receive the elements as a sign of our individual commitment to the call of Christ. So we're going to come up, each of us, there's two tables here in the front, there's one table in the back. I'd like to ask that if you want to receive from the back table, that we use this center aisle right here. If we want to use the tables at the front, feel free to come down these side aisles over here. I would also ask you then having received the elements, to return to your seat and to wait to partake in those elements until we can do so all together, all at once, as a sign of our union in the body of Christ. We come to him as one person, but we are made into one body. So our musicians are going to lead us in a song as we come forward to receive those elements, and then I will come up and I will lead us in participating in communion as one body. Friends, the table of the Lord is for the people of the Lord. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. Come as you are able and willing to receive of the God's grace. Mm -hmm. 